Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I'm trying to decide how to do this talk this evening. Last week, we spoke a little bit about these three frameworks of the Buddha's path, and I had given couple talks on this, but it was like maybe five or six years ago. And what I brought up the week before was the fact that the Buddha defines his path pretty specifically in comparison and contrast to not only the teachings of his time, but just even within the Dharma, the way he describes his path. When you talk about ancient Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, the Buddha talks about his path as a middle way, So it's a middle path, it's a direct path, and it is a folded path. And over the years, I found all three of these descriptions to be really helpful, and they can be used in a similar fashion to our three perceptions or characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So our impermanence, suffering, and not-self frameworks. And last week, we talked about the middle path and this concept of middle, in the Dharma. So I'll just reframe it here real quick. When we talked about the middle path, we did note that historically the middle path has this pretty specific interpretation as being the middle point between self-indulgence and self-harm, the ascetic uh, path. And that's true. Sometimes we use the middle path to denote that. But at a more consistent and I think even more important level, the middle path is about balance. It's about coming back to balance within the seven factors of awakening and within the eight folds of the path. And so the highlight from last week's talk on the middle way was about just reminding us that the middle way for each person is going to be different. And the middle, middle is not a place that you end up at, right? There's no, there's no middle. The middle is the balance point between what is going on in the present moment that allows you to be free from the suffering. So We just wanted to remember that we're not seeking the same still point at the middle. We are seeking the balance in the present moment. So whatever our enlightenment factors are doing, whether it's concentration or tranquility or investigation, we want to make sure there's balance. And so in some moments, we're going to to need a lot of, say, self-care. So we might do a lot of loving kindness practice. And then in another moment we might need a lot of investigation, or we might need a lot of joy, or maybe we're coming up against some unpleasant sensations, so we raise up the equanimity factor. But that doesn't mean equanimity is going to be equal to everything else. So middle doesn't necessarily mean equal in all things. It just means balance. So sometimes you have a large amount of something and a small amount of something, and that is the middle. So the middle way is about balance, Balancing the energies within the practice moment to moment versus finding a point where nothing's going on. So sometimes we think of the middle way as like some vague neutrality or or non-doing point. But balance really does mean balance between two things. And one thing might be heavier than the other if you look at it in terms of a scale. 
to balance the scale, you might need two tablespoons of equanimity, three cups of concentration, and maybe a sprinkling of garlic. I don't know. It just depends on what's going to create lasting happiness for you in the present moment. But so, so we talked about that. And then the other thing we talked about was direct path. And again, the traditional sense of the direct path had to do with talking about the Brahmanical tradition and how at the time people had to have intermediaries to the experience of what they would call uh, enlightenment um, or have the spiritual experience mediated by a priest um, who would be doing a rite and a ritual. So the direct path was non-attachment to rites and rituals and direct experience of awakening. So that was the sort of historic overtone of the term direct. But in a more practical sense, the direct path reminds us that the mind is always trying to create more fun along the path by adding in more distractions, things that are not directly related to our actual practice. So the mind does not want to be in the present moment and have this direct experience. It wants to wander around and plan things and do all this other stuff. So we talked a little bit about how direct also means how the mind continues to move off that direct path to enlightenment and do other things to spark up some kind of interest or some kind of fun or some kind of play or just some excuse not to practice for that matter. So we have to look at how direct our experience is. Is there anything in the way between us and the present moment? So we use those middle way, direct way to be able to monitor and rebalance our practice moment to moment. So we went into those things. Uh, I apologize for not recording it, but uh, your enlightenment is inevitable anyway, so don't worry about it. So today I wanted to talk about the third one, which was folded path. And for all those years I taught the Eightfold Path, those four or five years that I would teach the class, this was the one place that I brought in a little bit of Buddhist history in order to talk about the significant uh, significance of the folds of the path and how the path is designed. And the reason I do this is that, you know, oftentimes when we're when we talk about the Eightfold Path, you know, so we say, okay, there's eight folds of the path, and our response to that is usually, okay, what are the folds? But what we don't usually ask ourselves is, why are there eight folds? And what are they there for? And why did the Buddha pick those eight as opposed to some other eight folds of the path? And so it's helpful as we develop and practice that we remember that the, the path is folded, so to speak, or divided, compartmentalized in parts or series of practices, because the path is intended to be holistic. It's intended to be a series or set of tools that cannot be separated from each other, that each set of tools brings more depth and understanding to another set of tools. So every part of the path becomes a mirror or reflection of every other part. So it's all interconnected to create a sense of holism or a holistic experience. So it's helpful to not only know, I mean, I always suggest folks like know what the lists are under the eight folds. And we did that a few weeks ago. Um, but more than that is to understand how the folds interconnect and why, why they're there uh, in the first place. And one way of asking yourself about the eight folds is to say, you know, can I just get rid of one? If I were to get rid of a fold of the path, what would happen to my practice? Like if I just took out uh, 
joy. <laughs> if I took out joy, what would my practice look like? If I took out concentration, what would my practice look like? If I took out investigation, how would I practice? And that's a good exercise to get you in touch with your understanding of how the puzzle pieces fit together. It would be like creating a puzzle and then pulling out a few of the puzzle pieces and looking at the puzzle and seeing what's left behind. And then you see the significance of the fold of the path. Like if you take something out, you can see the significance. So I want to just, um, I like to use this opportunity to read this quote that I really enjoy from, uh, this is Tanisaro Bhikkhu's On the Path. And he's got this great little story, I don't know if it's a story, allegory maybe, called The Fire Escape, where he describes the Eightfold Path in terms of a fire escape, a fire escape plan. So here's his description of the folds of the Eightfold Path. And it goes something like this, The Fire Escape. The Buddha's teachings are like the instructions posted on a hotel room door telling you what to do when the hotel's on fire. First, heed the fire alarm. This corresponds to the Buddha's teaching on Samwega, the sense that you're enmeshed in a dangerous situation and you want to find a way out. Number two, realize that your conduct will mean the difference between life and death. This corresponds to heedfulness, the attitude underlying skillful action on the path. Third, read the map. Read the map posted on the door for finding the closest fire escape. This corresponds to wise view. Next, make up your mind to follow the map. This corresponds to right intention. Next, don't abuse any other people in the hotel as you try to make your escape. Don't lie to them about the escape route, don't claw your way over them, and don't cheat them out of their belongings. This corresponds to right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Next, do your best to follow the instructions on the map and resist the temptation to stay in the comfort of your room or to wander down the wrong corridors. This corresponds to right effort. Keep the map in mind at all times and check your efforts to make sure they're in line with it. This corresponds to right mindfulness. And lastly, keep calm and focused so that your emotions don't prevent you from being clearly aware of what you're doing and what needs to be done. This corresponds to right concentration. The fire escape. My favorite part of course is don't abuse any people in the hotel as you try to make your escape. Don't lie to them about the escape route. Don't claw your way over them and don't cheat them out of their belongings. This corresponds to right speech, right action, and right livelihood. That's the best part. So the folds of the path. I wanted to just give uh, a couple examples of how we balance uh, the folds of the path and then maybe give a little other context around, uh, around this. So as I said before, the direct path and middle path refers to the clarity of effort with the folds of the path and the middle balance, the middle place between the different folds. So I'll talk about the main balance points, and this is just a reminder in practice. So when we look at the Eightfold Path, we have to remember that effort, effort is always there. As I was saying a little bit today in the guided meditation, that it's important to remember if there isn't enough effort, the path becomes very vague and our energy level becomes really sloth and torpid. 
right? So that we have to have enough effort to do this. And I always think it's so fascinating that when you look at a variety of different spiritual teachings, that the Buddha has effort as one of the main components. Because of course, in any spiritual practice, you're going to have to put some effort in. But the Buddha thought it was so important that effort be listed, not only as one of the enlightenment factors, but also one of the folds of the path. So the efforting is really big in the Dharma. And so when we look at balancing effort, there's a couple ways that folks tend to get tripped up with effort. One is we tend to think that effort is going to create too much clinging and too much craving that our desire for awakening is bad, right? And that if we desire or we practice with some kind of goal, if we have concerted effort or this desire, <clears throat> excuse me, to be free, then that's a problem. And this is why the Buddha puts effort in the path because of this mistake. So he wants to remind us that there is efforting that is a version of clinging and there is an efforting that is a version of letting go. So it is the effortless effort. You're always going to have some intentionality when you're sitting. And if there isn't enough intention to actually be free from suffering, then the path is going to get pretty boring pretty quickly. I mean, it already is kind of boring to begin with. But if you don't garner some of that effortness, right, some of that energy and balance that in the path, then the path really does get to be kind of a chore, a thing to do, something on a checklist. So you always want to watch for that in your practice, that that fold is there to remind you that everything else that you're doing is going to seem kind of out of kilter if that one factor, that one fold is not in balance. There has to be enough energy to desire to succeed. So if you remember at the beginning uh, of sits or the beginning of the Saipatana where the Buddha says, be ardent, alert, and mindful. Mindful, hold an object. Ardent, ardent means wanting to do well, right? Paying attention enough with an effort to want to succeed at something. And then alert, again, being alert requires energy. So if there isn't enough alertness or ardency on the path, then the rest of the folds are going to be very dull. Our awareness isn't going to be acute enough to have the experiences that we're looking for. So one of the first things we have to balance out the gate is effort. We want to make sure we cultivate enough of the desire to practice. So one of the things I notice with students, and you all have been practicing for a while, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's helpful to remind ourselves because there's plenty of days that I look at my cushion and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to go sit there. I'm going to go sit downstairs in front of the TV. So... The efforting part is that if we don't reflect enough on the successes we've had on the path, or we don't, in a sense, fantasize about what it would be like to be free from suffering, we don't get enough of that joy energy. And the Buddha often talks about the need to recollect on good things that we've done, right? The Buddha wants us to recollect on what works in the path to inspire us to sit more, right? And so effort has a couple different dimensions. One is we need to remind ourselves why we're doing the work. We need to remind ourselves the joy of doing the work, the nice uh, experiences we have in our relationships or at work with our families, with our kids, when the work is go going well and use that energy to exert the effort. And then once we're on the cushion, reminding ourselves that yes, too much effort is going to lead to clinging and craving and more suffering.
but there's going to be some effort at play in order to balance the energies of the path. So there has to be some effort. Now, the only time there's not going to be really any, any effort is after all the enlightenment factors are balanced and we let go of the path itself, right? There isn't going to be any exerted effort technically at that moment of stream entry, effort is let go of. But until then, you have to do the efforting. You gotta make sure you're efforting and you have to make sure you're doing it in a way that inspires you and keeps your heart and your passion you know, directed towards the path. So if you find yourself bored, if you find yourself disinterested in the practice, remember that effort is out of whack in some way. It's out of balance. It's like walking down a, a, walking down a, a hallway kind of crooked, right? Everything is gonna be crooked if we don't have our energy uh, up in alignment. So that's one way that we balance that fold and why that fold is so important and why we can't, we can't leave it out. It can't be something that can be removed. There always has to be a sense of effort. The another balance, which I find really interesting is our balance in the path between wise view, which is our understanding of what happiness is. Well, let me tell you what wise view is and I'll tell you how we balance it. So wise view, of course, includes our understanding of cause and effect, that our actions have consequences and that freedom and suffering are co-created experiences and that our actions can lead us to freedom because we can participate in those experiences. So by changing the participation, we change the suffering. We change the feeling of release. So the, the balance in the wise view is that we have to understand that happiness for the practitioner is going to become more and more refined as we go. Wise view says, I want to be free from suffering. I want to be happy. But the challenge with that is that renunciation is a part of the path. So we have to give up some things. We have to cultivate some things. And oftentimes when we cling to the view, here's where the imbalance really comes in. If we cling to, I want to be enlightened. I want to be liberated, then we create a whole other layer of suffering, right? There has to be a balance between desiring this vision, this aspiration of liberation, and backing off and using it as a compass for our path. Wise view is this aspirational part that sets us sail on the journey. But if we're overly consumed or overly contracted around this desire for liberation, then the view becomes almost an impediment to the process, right? We're so consumed with the end goal, which is established in view, that we can't get there. So we need to have this balance of energy. Again, it's always effort, but there's this balance of energy between using view as, okay, I know where I'm going and I'm going to aspire to get there, and then the clinging, the clinging to the view or that end goal. Another thing is, worrying too much. So under wise view, there's this idea, okay, my actions have consequences. Another way we get this out of balance is that we worry too much about our actions. Am I a good person? Am I doing everything on the path to get to this goal? Now, one could say that this is also under skillful effort, but the, the aspect I'm highlighting here is, and I know I do this, it's like, oh, I really wanna get enlightened 
And then I start flogging myself for doing things. Oh, I should be doing this. Oh, I should be doing that. I'm never going to get there. We have to be careful about using the the view and this goal of enlightenment as a way of self-harming, right? Of making us not feel good enough, not feel lovable, not feeling competent. So it's very easy to have this uh, aspiration to enlightenment, right? We set our compass to the, to enlightenment and then we flog ourselves when we're off track in some way. So we want to balance again, the view and the action. We don't want to get too attached. So this view is important because we have to know where we're going, but it would be like, it'd be like wise view is like getting in the car to take a trip. And I was going to say using a map, which dates me, but okay. So you're on your iPhone and you have, you have your map, right? But instead of actually driving to your destination, you just obsess over the map, right? It's the view, right? You're like, oh my gosh, what if I can't get there on time? And how am I going to get there? You don't want to obsess over that. You want to put it on your dashboard and then and then drive. You don't want to get too uh, obsessed on the view. So we can get too obsessed with the enlightenment part and uh, we stagnate. So there's a balance there. But also, you can see that you can't have a path without a view, right? You can't toss out that fold of the path. If you were to toss out the fold of the path that talks about wise view, what you're tossing out is a belief that your actions are significant in your life, that your action actions can free you and bring self-care, self-love, self-compassion to you and others. So, and that there is a fact, a way out of suffering. So you can't throw that out. It just has to be a part of the path. So when you look at the folds and you can ask yourself and you can see clearly that they have to be in there, then you know at least you're on track of understanding how they interconnect. So wise view, wise effort. Now, of course, what Achan Jeff Tanisro Biku was saying is that we don't hurt people along the way, right? Part of our eightfold path is, and most of the path, is skillful actions. So if you look at the eight folds, the majority are about don't harm. That's the huge part of the path. We have our meditation part too, but skillful action, skillful speech, uh, wise livelihood, these folds of the path are all about non-harm. So if you think about, again, can I remove some aspect of one of these folds without seeing how they're interconnected, we can fall back into this insight that the Buddha thought ethics were such an important part of his path that they're embedded as the majority of the folds in his teachings. Now, what's interesting about this historically is that there were plenty of spiritual paths at the time of the Buddha that did not focus on precepts or ethics that the goal of the path was a type of bliss or euphoria that you can get from meditation. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of focus on harm or non-harm. It was like, get the experience you can have from your practice. But, you know, eh, precepts. There were different types of cults that were around that precepts were not a big thing, right? Bliss and joy was the focus of the practice. And the harming and not harming was not a focus. So what you see in these folds of the path is a reification of non-harm, like not only are we not going to harm, I'm going to tell you how to do that four different ways, four different ways on the path. So by the time you have all your folds, there's a lot of emphasis on not harming yourself and not harming others. So it's a huge part of the path. Now, again, one can cling to right action. And I know all of you at one point have asked yourself, am I doing right action enough? Am I keeping my precepts in the appropriate way? 
or like <laughs> if you're like me like abandoning the precepts altogether to try and prove that they, they don't need to be had on the path so when we get to the precepts and the right action part one we can't throw them out they're part of the folds for a reason one historically there were uh, spiritual paths that did not have them so there is emphasis here on non-harm but more than that there's just this idea can you imagine an a state of enlightenment using i guess we'll use state a state of enlightenment that we would call enlightenment that would include harming people, harming people like the highest developmental level of human beings includes like clawing your way to the top like imagine if enlightenment was kind of a corporate ladder but you just kind of step on people all, all the way up to your your goal it just doesn't make any sense to have a spiritual path that doesn't have some fold in it where we talk about ethics it's just not sensible to have that so we we can't throw out our ethics we can't throw out our skillful actions we have to see that as intrinsic to the rest of the path so we've got mindfulness and concentration of course so mindfulness and concentration what's interesting about mindfulness and concentration is a couple things so historically at the time of the buddha there were paths where the idea was all you needed was the fold of mindfulness to be liberated. Being present with none of the other heart-mind qualities was considered enough to be enlightened. So as long as you were mindful in your life or in your days, mindfulness was the goal. It was just presence. Being present was this evolution. And that was the point that was considered to be what you do. Similarly, there were traditions where the concentration fold of the path through the jhanas and the arupa jhanas, the immaterial states, were considered the end goal. So the focus was just on that, was attaining and attaining mystical states through significant concentration practice. So what we see in the Dharma is that both of those are incorporated, but they're now incorporated in a family they're incorporated in a family of other folds. So now they're brought into this interconnected set of teachings and they're not isolated as paths unto themselves. And if you look at some of the traditional critiques, I think last week I mentioned how the Buddha, he didn't seem to do this often, but he would debate other mystics and other gurus of the time and and they would they would call each other names too like the buddha was really fond of calling people foolish which i think is funny so they would call each other fools for not being like right about their enlightenment but there was times where the buddha would look at other teachings and say that is not my dharma that is not enough you don't have enough of the folds together for it to be my path and two of them were mindfulness and concentration. So the Buddha would, would critique paths that only used awareness, but did not incorporate the other folds together in a family set. And he would also criticize concentration paths that didn't temper the mystical states with mindfulness and ethics. So he thought all of those had to be in balance to get to the enlightenment that he was talking about. So we come historically where the Buddha is not only saying, here is my path, he's making comments on the other spiritual practices that are around so students can see that there's something different going on in his teaching. And if you look at the, the Pali Suttas, you'll often see these little parables and stories where a student 
comes to the Buddha and says, this teacher over here said dot, dot, dot. And is it true or is it your Dharma? And then the Buddha will then teach something about the Eightfold Path or about some aspect and show the contrast between the tradition or whatever the sentiment is. So mindfulness and concentration were very much a part of the scene at the time, but they were often taken as their own path. They weren't integrated into a holistic model the way the Eightfold Path is done. Now, another aspect of this is that during the time, uh, and I've talked about this in other talks when we looked at the history of the Buddha's development and his own spiritual practices with his teachers, there were multiple occasions where the Buddha was told by his teachers that he was done practicing, that he was enlightened, and that he should just teach. And twice he declined to teach and said that he had not achieved the enlightenment that he was seeking. And those practices that he were doing were these type of concentration practices, the non-dual practices, the arupa jhanas, and these kind of mystical practices. So it's interesting that the Buddha still incorporated that into his Eightfold Path, but he surrounds it and nurtures it with these, these other folds. So when you look at these practices, you can see that if you pull any thread out, the whole thing sort of becomes different. It sort of falls apart. If you don't have the view, then you, there's, there's no place to go. If you don't have the appropriate effort, you're gonna create more clinging and suffering. If you don't have continuity of mindfulness, you can't be present long enough to see what's going on. If you don't have pleasure of concentration, it's hard to let go of the material world. All of these different folds come together. And then again, if we're harming people along the way, your mind is never gonna be mindful or quiet enough to do the work. So everything starts to interconnect over time. And you've got these folded folds uh, for the Buddha that are so significant. So the main take home about the folds in this regard is one, the folds are there to create the directness right? We're supposed to look at the folds and kind of push out everything else and to make sure that what is balanced are the tools and the heart-mind qualities within the folds of the path. And they're supposed to be seen as a family of supportive teachings, right? And practices that together create something larger than themselves. They transcend. So we build the path and then we let go of the path. The path comes together as a set of eight folds that create our seven factors of enlightenment, and then we let them go. But they have to be in balance. Balance is huge with the folds. So there's a couple other things I just wanted to make commentary on as far as the folds of the path and as far as the goal of the path, because I think this is really important historically and for contemporary purposes. And I've talked about this before on retreats that we've done, and I've gone into a lot of detail, but I just wanted to talk about mysticism for a second, because whenever I talk about the folds of the path, I think it's really important to remind ourselves of the mysticism that the Buddha was engaged in as he developed his own teachings. So again, remember that the Buddha was born into a society of Hinduism where spirituality was the thing, right? You have a thousand years of spiritual tradition going on. The Buddha is stepping into one of the most, the richest most complex and diverse set of spiritual teachings humanity has ever created in one place on the planet, right? India at the time of the Buddha has this legacy of yoga and spiritual traditions that are just amazing. So he's, 
he's kind of he's not that cool <laughs> when he steps in he's just another mystic on the block who's like fasting and doing the traditions of the time and so he doesn't have his eightfold path he's actually practicing basically hindu mysticism and that's where he is he's with the ascetics who've renounced the caste system he's doing the wandering ascetic thing and he is basically practicing the non-dual traditions of the time the vedanta of the time and that's where the Eightfold Path begins. The Eightfold Path begins with the Buddha practicing the mystical teachings of his day. And from those mystical teachings, he incorporates some of them into the Eightfold Path, but he builds something that's quite different. So some of the things that I think is helpful to remember that are brought from before. So one is the jhanas. So the Buddha was a yogi, so he was practicing the jhanas and but there, the main difference was that at the time, there were mystical, uh, I keep using, forgetting the word, there's another word, I keep saying mystical cult because it's that's one of the words, but there's a better word and I can't think of it. I'll just say tradition. There were mystical traditions at the time where the eighth or ninth jhana was considered enlightenment. So the Buddha brings in concentration practice into the Eightfold Path, but he changes the goal. He says that that is not the goal. The goal is not the end of the jhanas. So he pulls something in from the time as a fold, but he changes it and says that's not the goal of the path. Another example is loving kindness. We forget that the Brahma Viharas were already part of the mystical teachings at the time. So the Buddha didn't invent, 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 invent loving kindness, compassion, equanimity. These kinds of things were already talked about. So the Brahma Viharas were part of different types of schools of spiritual practices. But the interesting thing is that the Buddha takes the Brahma Viharas and brings them into a larger framework, what is the other folds of the path. And then he actually says that he's not convinced that loving kindness in and of itself is enough for liberation. He says that loving kindness has to be tempered and balanced with skillful view and skillful effort and mindfulness. That mindfulness or loving kindness on its own kind of dangling out here isn't enough. So he takes something that's already there at the time and then creates a larger structure to practice around and then changes what he says the goal is. So a lot of the folds of the path are inherited from the previous spiritual traditions. The eight folds are from the eight limbs of yoga. But what the Buddha does with the eightfold path is different than what's going on at the time. So I always like to remind students that even though the Eightfold Path has strong similarities to the teachings of the time, the Buddha changes the goal or says that they are just steps along the way to a larger goal. And that was totally unique to the time. The Buddha's ethics, the Buddha's use of jhana, completely different than what was being used. So a lot of people insulted him and called him a fraud. Actually, there's a word... Some people called him a clever wizard. That was the biggest insult to call him a clever wizard. So those who really disliked his recapitulation of the practice of the time referred to him as a clever wizard. They probably would have also called him a donkey. That's another that's another critique. So if you really want to insult someone, you call him a donkey. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that I think it's important to remember that these folds are there for a reason. That's the big take home, that they are taken from the Buddha's own experiences and put together into a larger framework. 
Now, one other thing I want to say about the difference and significance of these folds coming together is that the Buddha is living in a time of Hinduism. And during Hinduism, there is a sense of enlightenment that's very different from how the Buddha describes enlightenment. So at the time that the, of the Buddha, in Hinduism, enlightenment was a mystical experience of Atman Brahman oneness, right? The goal was oneness with a source, the source of all beings, Brahman. So in Hinduism, you're ret in, for the mystical part, you're returning to a source, an essence, and that your spiritual practices are designed to have a oneness experience with quote-unquote God. So although Hinduism is a umbrella of a variety of different cults that worship many different gods, Brahman is still considered to be the highest. And Atman, the soul or self, fuses back with Brahman to create oneness or enlightenment. So at the time of the Buddha, enlightenment had a particular definition, which was oneness back with source. That's a basic understanding of the uh, Hindu enlightenment. Now, a few, a few months ago, or for the past few months, we've been talking about fabrication and formation, right? How the mind creates experiences. So the Buddha makes this absolutely dangerous proclamation that the oneness you experience in those practices is a fabrication and not enlightenment. This is hu a hugely dangerous idea. <laughs> you don't, this is not something that, that you're, you're really going to be saying. And hence assassination attempts and so on. So the Buddha says this oneness you're experiencing is not the peak of the mountain. You have to let go of the oneness because it's still a fabrication. It's a co-created mind state. It's a mystical state. So there's this huge leg legacy of non-dual traditions and oneness and uh, unification traditions. And the Buddha comes up, takes these bits and pieces, creates an eightfold path, and then says, no, that's not it. So it's really important that when we think about the eightfold path, I just think it's healthy to know that some of these things are inherited. The Buddha did not create them himself. His unique contribution in the folded path is bringing together different goals of different traditions into a single path that he says sort of trampolines, for lack of a better word, into something else, into something that he refers to as enlightenment. So one last thing to say about the, the times and this idea of enlightenment, it's really important to remember that nowadays when we say enlightenment, people oftentimes think Buddha, like the word enlightenment is kind of associated with Buddhism. So like people who aren't meditators, when you say enlightenment, they're like, oh yeah, Buddha. <laughs> but, or when we say Dharma, we think of Buddha. But what we forget is that at the time of the Buddha, every teacher had their own Dharma. It wasn't Buddha's, the Buddha had a Dharma, but Gregory had a Dharma and Jessica and Michael had their own Dharma and Stephanie had her Dharma. Like everyone in this room, if we were teachers, would have our own Dharma. So Dharma wasn't Buddhism, Dharma was the path. And the different ascetics that were wandering around with their community of students had their Dharma and their Dharma had an endpoint, which they called enlightenment. And then the teachers would debate which enlightenment was the real enlightenment. So the Eightfold Path is a unique expression of what a human being has told us is an enlightenment. And so that's just something I think that's important to remember. And I'm just going to list off a few of the other enlightenments because I think it's interesting that at the time these were the debates around these were enlightenments and people really practiced and believed this. So as I said earlier, 
One version of enlightenment was yoga. Yoga was well established before Buddhism. And that moving through the jhanas, the eighth jhana, there's rumored to be a ninth jhana, but whatever the last jhana is, that's that's enlightenment. That was pretty common. Rites and rituals were still really popular. So you have the Brahmanical tradition. So the unification of consciousness, that oneness experience for a lot of people, that was enlightenment. And then the aesthetic practices were considered to lead to enlightenment, which was the self-harming practices. So the big ones, of course, were the Jains. And in the Jains, one of their beliefs was that all action is bad karma. So the best way to purify the mind is to stop acting, which included stop eating, stop drinking, and people would die. And so that was considered at the moment of death to be a version of enlightenment. So people thought that that was enlightenment. That was a, something. And again, the two others that were really common was that the Brahma Viharas, as we know them, that love itself is an enlightenment, that if you just be loving to yourself and others, that was the peak experience. And then mindfulness or presence, that just being present is the enlightened state, that you're just, you just want to be present. So I like to say those just so we can remember the uniqueness of the Eightfold Path, the fact that it's sort of a conglomeration of history and practices and beliefs of the Buddha. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I said the Eightfold Path is a summary of the Buddha's blueprint of his training and his experiences to try to put together a clear path to where he thought he got to, right? And then each person who gets there confirms, oh, the Eightfold Path does in fact go to that end. And the whole history of the Dharma is people walking the path based on the blueprint, trying to confirm whether or not it's actually enlightenment. So I just think that's helpful when we talk about direct path, folded path, middle path, that the Buddha did a huge contribution to spiritual traditions of the time. And he was kind of a pain in the butt for, for, for people. Like he wasn't really like with the trends of the time. Like he had his own jam and it was the Eightfold Path and other people were like, you're a crazy wizard. Like that's all we got to say to you and we're just going to ignore you. So those are the three. Those are the three frameworks that the Buddha uses to let people know what his path are to contrast his path with paths of the time and to give us a framework for understanding what we're doing and why we're doing it within uh, the blueprint. That's my story and I'm sticking to it for now. <laughs> uh, thank you for your kind attention, friends. I'm a big fan of, uh, of legacy and having been blessed in my life with, even before I was into the Dharma, I. I had great mentors, like I had great, I had great teachers in elementary school that to this day I remember. I had great uh, teachers in high school and college and just friend mentors, folks who were older, who had experience. And uh, so I always am a big fan of looking back to see like where, where we've come from. What is this that we're inheriting, right? Because thousands of years, and we don't know, we don't know what the Buddha taught. 500 years after he taught, we have the Eightfold Path. So, you know, we use it. It's a coherent system, but who knows? Uh, if any one of you get to enlightenment, the requirement, though, is that you text me immediately, immediately and let me know and say, yes, the Eightfold Path works. You're doing well, Gregory. Just keep, just keep, just keep going. You're, you're going to get there. So I just, that's the requirement. You can't just go crawl into a cave and keep it to yourself. You have to keep me at the top of your text list of those you inform that what needed to be done has been done. All right, my friends, for those who need to go, thank you so much for attending this evening. Please come next week and support Gary. 
Gary's going to take the time to be here, so please come. I'm excited for you to have uh, the opportunity to see him teach again. Um, so please do that, and I'll be back uh, the week after. We can hang and do some meta for those who can stay. Take a long, slow, deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. Relaxing fully on the exhale into the sitting body. Notice the sense of shape and form that sense of taking up space in this world. How does it feel to be here in this moment? And let's check in with our mood how is the heart feeling in this moment? Expanded or contracted? Alert or sleepy? Maybe some positive sensations trickling up. Maybe a sense of neutrality or aversion. Let's just welcome everything back into this present moment and create a sense of refuge and safety in this breathing body. And with this sense of ease of the present moment, let's wish ourselves well, thanking ourselves for the practice of the evening, our intention to be free, the healthy desire, the healthy effort to be free from suffering, stress, and discontent. May we know true joy and true happiness in this life. And may all beings share in these merits of practice. In this present moment, with this breath, 
if you could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would you wish in this moment? May all beings be free from suffering in this very life. Thank you, my friends. Good to see y'all. Have fun with Gary next week, and I'll see you the week after. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.